0: The the and
1: the desert You're listening to No Borders Media. On today's show, on the eve of the climate strike, we speak with two people of color members of Extinction Rebellion Quebec, May Chu and Alex Shiraz. This extended interview is a critical engagement with Extinction Rebellion, which has become known in the UK and increasingly in Quebec for their disruptive non-violent direct actions to raise awareness about the climate crisis. The first half of this interview explores the origins, actions, and organizing of Extinction Rebellion, including some reflections on intergenerational organizing and activist burnout. In the second half, we examine left-wing critiques of Extinction Rebellion more deeply, including their seeming de-emphasis of anti-capitalism and anti-colonialism, the persistent white liberal middle-class centering of environmentalism in the West, and the problematic tactic of pure non-violence. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network, we share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of Indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to capitalism and colonialism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at network at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Let's go to that interview with May Chu and Alex Shiraz of Extinction Rebellion Quebec right now. I'm in the studio with May Chu and Alex Shiraz. May and Alex are members of Extinction Rebellion in Quebec. They're part of the organizing collective for this Friday's climate strike in Montreal on September 27th. And they've been involved with Extinction Rebellion organizing for the last little while. And this is an opportunity for No Borders Media listeners to get a sense of what Extinction Rebellion and climate justice actions are like, at least from the point of view from two Montrealers. May and Alex, welcome to No Borders Media.
0: Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: (laughs) All right, well, let's start with uh, just situating ourselves a bit. Extension Rebellion is a relatively new thing, from what I can tell, although the issues that it's involved with have been around for decades and arguably for centuries. But give us an idea of w- what Extension Rebellion is about, both here in Quebec, but internationally. Where did it start? How did it come to Quebec? What is it fighting for? As concisely as possible, give us give us a sense of what Extension Rebellion is all about.
2: So Extension Rebellion started in the UK in November last year, and it really quickly spread uh, to become an international social movement we use civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance to protest against really what's the criminal inaction of governments in dealing with the climate crisis we're demanding swift swift action as you would in a crisis to bring about change to ensure that we have a habitable planet and stop the worst impacts of the climate crisis so life on earth Is in crisis and it's been for decades and scientists have been warning us that we have to stop exploiting the resources on this planet as if it's never gonna end but sadly they've been silenced by corporations and governments who put profit before people and the planet now scientists agree that we've entered a period of abrupt climate breakdown but most governments are in denial or deliberately trying to keep us in the dark so we see it as our right but also moral obligation to take action to push the alarm button to warm that time is rapidly running out to change course if we want to have a habitable planet tomorrow and for many generations to come. And we also acknowledge that many people and groups have been pushing that alarm button for a really,
0: really long time.
1: May, do you want to add anything about uh, the origins of Extension Rebellion and how it came to Quebec?
0: Sure. Um, Actually, it was um, started uh, by a Facebook call by a young film director named Elsa Clippert. Uh, She heard about Extinction Rebellion in the U.K., and she asked if anybody was interested in forming it. This was way back, I think, in December. Um, In December, there was a first meeting. December 2018? 2018. Okay, so it's
1: not even a year yet
0: no so we're a very young organization but we've grown at a huge uh, really rapid rate uh, we have I, I think between nine to ten working committees um, and we probably have thousands of members by now
1: if either of you know could you tell us a bit more about the origins of Accenture rebellion in the UK from my understand it started in the UK there were a couple of, of people uh, who had uh, sort of launched the call out for that so can you give us a sense of where that came from and and how it inspired people here
2: yeah so there although extension rebellion is quite new but the people behind in the movement like you said um, it's something that's been going on for years so there was a movement called rising up that for years had been working on this um, and there were some other smaller groups that they basically were all working towards the same thing so they got together and created extension rebellion
1: and um, In terms of the UK, some of the actions people have probably heard about or might have heard about because a lot of this got international attention was civil disobedience to disrupt uh, day-to-day functioning in the heart of London. I remember a potential disruption of the Heathrow Airport and the rest of it. So I believe that was last fall and there's going to be an anniversary coming up. We'll talk about it in terms of October's uh, week of Of disruptions, but uh, give our listeners a sense of what's happened in Quebec uh, since Extension Rebellion has formed in December. They say that in organizing, sometimes you live years within a few weeks, and sometimes (laughs) you live decades within, you know, uh, a long time. So there can be a lot of constant organizing, but it seems like a long time, and that's what it seems here because it's not even been a year, and yet uh, everywhere I look in Montreal, there's. the uh, the symbol of extension rebellion and uh, there seems to be flash mobs or actions happening uh, pretty constantly so give give our listeners a sense of actions that have happened since uh, last December and this current January in in Quebec. Uh,
0: you're right. I think that um, I think that the public is becoming real uh, is becoming aware of the urgency of c- the climate crisis and that and because of that Extinction Rebellion is able to draw on a lot of people a lot of activism I've never seen so many um, a a movement that's attracted so many people so quickly um, and in fact in the beginning we had a lot of burnouts um, people just threw themselves 24-7 into organizing we've had five or six actions, um, civil disobedience actions to date uh in On the week of October 7th, we're organizing a second International Week of Rebellion, again with actions and perhaps arrests. I can't go too much into detail.
1: Ashra, um, um, Alex, do you want to add anything about uh, the organizing in the last uh, few months and what kind of activities have happened?
2: Yeah, so I think um, maybe what's important to highlight is also like people don't really want to be doing this Th- it takes huge amount of effort and energy and time to be doing these but people just feel basically desperate because the government is just not listening um to the scientists and and to the crisis that we're have in our hands so people are forced to do these actions um This is why I think a lot of people are getting involved in XR because it's not just, you know, we've signed the petitions, we've done the marches, some have written to their local politicians, uh, nothing has changed. So we have to take a more radical and drastic approach to basically make them listen. Um, So that's why we're occupying streets, that's why we're doing these actions so that, you know, they start listening.
1: Extension Rebellion is part of what I guess you could call a, a larger ecosystem of organizations that are organizing around the environment, around climate, the climate crisis, around climate justice. What what makes your role different? I mean, one thing clearly that stands out that we can all sort of agree on is civil disobedience. But there have been there have been groups ranging from very moderate, if I can call it, NGOs to other radicals that are organizing around this issue. So how do you fit into that bigger ecosystem of of resistance that's happening in uh, in the world, but specifically, I think, in in North America? You
0: know what? When we give our um, civil disobedience trainings, one of the most common questions that we're asked is, how are you guys different from Greenpeace? Because they also get people arrested. And I think that um, one of the main differences is that, you know, Greenpeace is a, well-funded uh, international institution. Um, when they do an action, they have paid activists most of the time to do the actions. Uh, they take the decisions, um, and then they have the resources to sustain the actions, whereas uh, Extinction Rebellion is really driven by its members. Um, we're non hierarchical organization Uh, we make decisions as much as possible by consensus and all our members have uh, are are welcome to join a team um, and take part in designing the action deciding on the action as well as implementing the action
1: did you want anything alex
2: yeah i think what's also important to um, add is that it's not just uh, XR isn't just about, you know, um, doing actions that could potentially lead to arrest. There's there's all these different committees from communications to creating art to um, reaching out to different communities. Um, so there's, there's such a variety of things that people can get involved with. And if there's a thing that people are interested in doing and it's not there already in place, um, there's a place for that as well. There's no one that kind of has to decide and, and lead on it and, and be like, oh, I have to approve this. So it's really what May said, this, this is a movement led by the people, run by the people, for the people
0: because we are funded purely by individual donations to date we we may not refuse of course bigger donations but for sure we will refuse corporate donations um so we're our our position our political positions are are independent um and we're not tied to being afraid that you know our funding may be cut off well basically we don't have much funding <laughs> um, and so we're able to take really bold positions such as uh, carbon neutrality by 2025 and that is something that a lot of our environmental organizations won't approach because they think it's not very marketable um, I- I- you know we're we're gonna lose support whereas we make our dem- demands according to the science and the facts
1: just a couple of uh, factual questions here uh uh, to what extent is extension Rebellion coordinated internationally? I get the sense that maybe just what I'm, what I'm exposed to in terms of my social media feed and what I read, but I get the sense that extension Rebellion in UK and in Europe in general is quite strong. And then in North America, Quebec seems to be very, very vibrant and active. But could you give our listeners just a sense of uh, where else is extension Rebellion active? I know it's active worldwide, but where is it very active and to what extent is that coordinated?
0: Well, because we're decentralized and we're non-hierarchical, each uh, extinction rebellion chapter and I- I is the, uh, is autonomous. They they can make their own decisions as long as I mean, we do have some basic guiding principles. We have the same demands, but apart from that, um, each collective, each committee is uh, free to organize the way they they, they, they see fit. Um, because I don't know, uh, I, it, it it could be. I never uh, analyzed why Extinction Rebellion in Canada, within Canada, in Quebec, has appeared to be so strong. Um, but we do lend our resources to other chapters. Uh, for example, we've Gone to Toronto to give the civil disobedience training. In fact, one of their organizations came and participated in our July 13th mass arrest, uh, just so that he could have the experience and bring it and share it with his group in Toronto. Uh, we already uh, we also gave the civil disobedience training to the chapter in Quebec City. Um, we we do take a we, we are all linked um, in terms of communications, and we so we do give a lot of support and advice uh, where and whenever we're asked for it.
1: And could it be that it's relatively stronger in Quebec just because of the general political culture here of youth when they're mobilized, are really mobilized compared to the rest of Canada? Or how else would, can we account for that? And where else in the world is Accenture Rebellion relatively strong? I mean, UK, there's always these headlines, but I'm always wary of headlines taking away from other other movements or other um, other Accenture Rebellion groups that might be just as active but just simply don't get the same headlines because... They're in a non-Anglo country.
0: Well, but even in terms of being strong in Quebec, it's true that we do have a lot of youth, but we, a a lot of the members um, come from a, like we're very diverse. Well, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) maybe not racially, um, but in terms of socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, we do have a diversity uh, in our workshops. There are so many teachers who come to our civil disobedience trainings. We we've, we've have doctors, uh, nurses, lawyers, um, a lot of students who come and are interested in joining us. But I just wanted to say that I was in one coalition meeting with other uh, environmental groups in Quebec, all you know, really strong, really fast. And then um, one activist said, you know, in Quebec, I think that we should s- we can say that we're the world leader in fighting climate change and I don't like that type of um attribute just because um I keep reminding people that the people who are on the front lines of fighting climate change are people who are dispossessed people from um uh, developing countries uh indigenous peoples from all over the world, and I think that um they're the ones who are in the leadership in terms of organization and um, being able to fight the fight that we should be fighting here
1: i 'm a i 'm a bit of a an organizing nerd when it comes to the nitty gritty of how things get organized, especially grassroots organizing and both of you've already described how quickly this has grown, literally. A lot of autonomous actions, decentralized, uh, avoiding leadership dynamics, avoiding the dynamics that come with, uh, you know, having your funding linked to one specific group or organization. But being an organizing nerd, I know the problems that come with that. Uh, when things are extremely decentralized, that means there can be a lot of problems. Uh, often people going in directions that are at worst detrimental to what you want to achieve there are whenever people claim there are no leadership dynamics there's always leadership dynamics in one way or another you know totally in good faith people who want to see things go in certain directions or make certain connections people who want to keep things focused on climate change others who are saying no it has to be linked as you were just alluding to may to other frontline struggles so i'm not here to to ask about gossip or any anything like you know you're organizing as you're organizing but can you share for me the challenges of 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 that organizing and how it's actually done, like how does how does coordinating uh, basically, from what I can see, lots of new organizers, uh, lots of people who are relatively new to getting on the streets. There's a dynamic here of potentially getting arrested. So that's a whole other level of pressure. Uh, A lot of people who are new, a lot of people who are seasoned, uh, different uh, dynamics in terms of age, in terms of uh, what people want to get out of it, in terms of culture. And then, of course, here in Montreal, uh, the language stuff. So talk about some of the organizing challenges in terms of staying true to grassroots organizing and staying focused. And, you know, to be fair to you, it's it's only been roughly... uh, eight or nine months of organizing so you you know this is probably a question better posed two years from now three years from now but even where you're at now uh, both as individual uh... members of extinction really can you just reflect a bit on on some of those organizing challenges uh, some of the nitty-gritty stuff that that goes along with uh... trying to coordinate this kind of uh... challenge a disruptive challenge to uh... uh authority
2: i think what has first of all what has been really amazing to see and I've been involved in lots of other movements before and you can see the hierarchy there's egos involved and like you said people want to be leaders and want to do things differently and everyone thinks their way is the right way I think what has worked so incredibly well is that like that ego doesn't really exist within XR there are of course personal things like you would because we're humans right but I don't feel that that really takes over because I feel everyone are so determined um, to to bring about this change that we so desperately need because our lives literally depend on it. So I think that kind of removes some of the ego problems that you might see in other places because there's this incredible sense of urgency that we have to get stuff done. So let's not mess about with just going. Oh, but th- about about the ego things. Um, of course, there are challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges is what may touched upon before, which is burnout. We have people who are devoting uh, such incredible amount of time and energy on this, on top of work, studies, family, and just life in general. Um, and because there's there's not necessarily a huge amount of people doing a lot of the work, there is this huge risk of burnout. I think that's one of the big challenges. Um but we are like May said, we're growing really fast and more and more people are joining in and that should helpfully distribute the uh, the workload a bit more.
0: Um, like you're right. You pointed out that a lot of the activists in our movement are new and in fact um, Elsa clapart who called like who started extinction rebellion in Quebec never was never involved in any political or social movement before she started um, extinction rebellion so we have a lot of people with no experience to people like myself who's old <laughs> and has lots of experience um, but However, even I don't have experience in, in terms of organizing in a decentralized, non-hierarchical, almost anarchistic um, organization. And, and um, as Alex said, um, that does bring with it s- challenges. I think that we've experimented with different types of leadership because we still do do need a leadership. So how do you take on leadership without... Concentrating the power in the hands of f- a few individuals. Um, and so we try to uh, have a, as many debates and discussions as possible. And I think that one really heated subject that came up was um, coming up with a policy on just transition. Uh, again, Juggy, you reminded us that we're in Quebec, and we can't assume that just because you're a full fledged climate, um, you know. Activists fighting climate change, it means that you embrace anti-racism, uh, um, chauvinism, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't come naturally. And so we do have, uh, we've had conflicts of uh, values and principles and approaches towards human rights and even discussing about what is inclusion. Um, but, but these are <laughs> all things that we're working on and that we, we resolve and we confront as they come along.
1: And we'll definitely get into some of that a bit later in the interview, but I, I still want to stay on the subject of uh, organizing. So maybe I'll ask a few a few specifics. Um, like, how, how would a group like Extinction Rebellion decide who speaks in the name of the organization? You know, so that's that's often um, a problem that happens in a group. Like, when can the name be used on behalf of the group, and when can it can it not? How do you coordinate? Democratic decision making with thousands of members. Is there a spokes council? Is there an assembly? So that's that's some of the nerdy stuff that I'm I'm interested in. You know, and even give a sense of like what the room is like when you're when you're meeting. I remember, you know, I've been I've been fortunate enough to be part of what I would consider to be two mass movements: the um, the anti-capitalist movement against uh, capitalist globalization of the late '90s and early 2000s, and the anti-war movement, and to have observed a mass movement which. You probably both of you observed with me, which was the uh, student strike in 2012. And, you know, on that level, uh, and and I think it's fair to say this is now a mass movement. When you're talking about hundreds of people potentially at meetings or memberships of thousands, that's a mass movement. So give a sense about, you know, how decisions get made and what that room looks like. And you know, is it all coordinated on email lists? Or is it all coordinated on Instagram messaging? Or or how how is how is that happening? Um, I know you you know you don't want to talk too long about it, but give us give give at least me a sense of what that looks like.
2: Um, okay, if I address the first bit about you said who can who can kind of use the name XR and who gets to decide it, of who gets to do it. Um, actually, no one gets to decide it. Um, XR has got ten principles, which as long as you abide by them, and the ten principles include. Things like being inclusive, no judgment, no discrimination. Um, so if you abide by those 10 principles, then you can call yourself an XR member. Um, if you obviously don't, then y- you can't represent XR. It's, it's like really <laughs> as simple as that. Do you want to answer the
0: second? Yeah, and the way that or, um, XR is organized is that we really, really encourage autonomous action. So like, just for to give you an example... The week, the first week that XR in the UK did a call out for uh, protests against um, the uh, forest fires in Brazil, in Montreal we were not organized at all, but there was, we had one member at Concordia who just put out a Facebook call and said hey i'm gonna go in front of the um concert today at noon meet me there join me and then we there were two of us who joined him and he went and in the name of xr and that was totally fine so you don't nobody needs to ask for permission to do actions
1: if either of you want to maybe just describe what a a law a a large xr meeting looks like uh here in montreal oh
0: you know what at this so we have like about ten, nine or ten working committees and every single week each committee sends a coordinator and we have a c- we call it a coordinators meeting on Wednesday evenings. And to tell you the truth, Jackie, we have a lot of people who are members who are or who are volunteers um but everybody is really busy and so we we're able to uh we're fortunate enough to have um people who are committee enough to be want to become coordinators, um, but not you know, we don't have, like, even 30 or 40 or 50 people who want to be so intensively involved that they want to be part of every single discussion. We kind of trust each other. We trust, a- and this is another lesson. You know, in the beginning, um, we did have accusations of, oh, how come you, s- uh, who gave you the right to say this to the media? And I didn't like what you did. And, I, and, and it was very early in our movement that we said, hey, <laughs> if we agree to send someone, to represent us. We have to trust that person to know what he, he or she is doing. And nobody is perfect. We do, mem- do we make mistakes and we learn from them. Um, so yeah, we do. W- yeah, we are a movement. But at the same time, we don't have people who are so intensively engaged that they want to be involved in every level of decision making. And like, once again, like, I think there's a lot of trust in each other's expertise.
1: Before getting into the into a larger, I mean, this has all been a political discussion, but a larger political discussion around some of the more, I guess, controversial areas. There's been a huge emphasis on the involvement of youth, and for people who don't know, I mean, a lot of people have heard of Greta Thunberg and and the and the student strike or the school strike that she initiated or seemingly initiated here in Quebec. Uh, there's been an enormous response to that, and. Um, most Fridays, but certain Fridays are picked out. There have been uh, students, youth, who walked out of school, but in many cases, we're talking about people in their high schools and in some cases, primary schools that are walking out of their schools. Last year, uh, there was a large demonstration during that strike. As we know, there's a huge emphasis on the role of youth and specifically the fact that youth are telling us, that is, us that are older uh, or another generation, that uh, we've ruined their future and we need to take things a lot more seriously. So, for example, uh, this Friday's uh, climate strike action here in Montreal is uh, is centered around the uh, the role of youth because they're going to be walking out of their classes. It's gotten to the point where sc- certain school boards have recognized that in a way and have allowed people to walk out or declaring it a uh, professional activity day or, as they say in French, a journée pédagogique. So, how is that navigated? Because You know, there is a tendency for for all of us as adults to tolerate or accept the fact that youth are involved. But sometimes that can be done in condescending ways or or, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. Um, But I get the sense that there's a lot of leadership by youth, by quite young youth, like 16 and under here in Quebec. As far as I can tell, neither of you are 16 and under (laughs) (laughs) um, and are likely, you know, older than that. So can you talk about that dynamic, the climate strike here in, in, in Montreal, uh, being led by youth, and how is that navigated by a group like Extinction Rebellion that is clearly intergenerational?
0: Um, if I talk, if I can just say something about the, I would say interorganizational collaboration is it's worked so well. Um, and in fact, when we did our July 13th action blocking Sherbrooke Street, um, La Planète s'invite à l'université au Parlement. Uh, you know the youth organizations came and supported us pour le future, um, and then vice versa like in terms of um, this coming Friday we're there to help and support and that's why uh, we're there in solidarity with the youth but of course it's going most you know decisions the organizations the actions are almost purely led by the youth um, so that's in terms of intra-organizational solidarity within XR we have an XR youth group and a lot of the XR youth group are uh, kids from um, not elementary but uh, secondary school and I have to tell you that (laughs) um, the relationship to date has not been ideal uh, because on the one hand and again this uh, this is an example of how we're trying to develop and grow and um, find better ways of functioning as an organization because the rest of us adults are in different committees and then we have a youth XR affinity group um, and I think as adults we try to give them the autonomy and the liberty and you know all the the room to decide their own actions to the point that we we uh, lose a little bit in terms of communication. The other, the other particularity is that the youth are very impatient. Um, as you pointed out, in this spring they organized 150,000 youth to, to join in a, um, um, a climate march. They were able to have an, a meeting with the Minister of the Environment, Benoit Ch- Charette, And when the government uh, revealed this budget, there was nothing there for the environment. And the youth are smart. They're not fooled by empty gestures and promises and greenwashing. They're so angry. And the youth at XR, they're also ready to go to the next level. They're ready to do civil disobedience actions. And I have to say, this is where as adults, um, we're a little bit out of our comfort zone because they are youth we are um, apprehensive about any any insinuation that we're trying to manipulate them or brainwash them (laughs) and so we're not able to give them the support that I think they're expecting and at but at the same time because they do want to do civil disobedience um, full disclosure like my 13 year old daughter is in that group and sometimes I worry for her because I'm just you know for the adults we have like full day trainings and we take weeks to do an action to make sure that people are uh, doing it um you know voluntarily with full um fully conscious of all the risks that could occur and then uh being prepared for the consequences of the actions whereas with the youth we can't offer them the same support because of the issues i just pointed out um so we're trying to find a way to do it better well,
1: in Canada, we have the Young Offenders Act, so you can get away with a lot of stuff <laughs> if you're under 18, and uh, I'm, I'm not shy about saying people should take advantage of that in terms of disruption. Alec, did you want to add anything about uh, the the question or general question about youth and their involvement and how is that navigated?
2: I think the, the one thing I wanted to add is that this concept that often adults... Um, you know will go can be quite condescending to when youth get involved in these things and i think a lot of that stems because when we were at that age we were quite naive because we weren't told about just how severe of a crisis that we were in so we never had to think about these things we never had to worry about the future the way that young people are having today so i think we can't say that oh but you know they're so naive they don't know what they're doing because that's how we were these kids have been their their future has basically been stolen away from them and they've seen the truth and they accept the truth and they're acting with the truth in mind so i don't think we can compare them to like when we were 16 or younger to saying oh yeah but you know when i was 16 i had no idea and i would just be so easily influenced by these things these these young people today have had no choice but to take action because past generations have basically failed them
1: so let's get into a a larger political discussion and some of the debates that happen around how we mobilize and uh, and other questions the spirit of this is um that i want to share is that any movement that becomes mass or draws attention is always going to be complex and often have contradictions you know just some recent examples there was the Occupy Wall Street movement of 2011 and that was I mean, this is a this is a left-wing show, right? So that was great in the sense that capitalism was being challenged, but it wasn't so great in other aspects where you saw some aggressive things. Same thing was seen in the Arab Spring, for example. There was a challenge to authority, but there were also some problematic dynamics. I, I recently did an interview here for Noboros Media about the Hong Kong protests, and similarly there are some protesters that are waving American and British flags, which I think is absurd, but uh, there's also a lot of autonomous uh, anti-capitalist stuff happening. The Gilets Jean movement in France is, an, is a pretty recent example where there's just a great challenge to authority, but at the same time, there's often some problematic dynamics. So it's in that spirit that I ask these questions or we're going to get into this discussion because I, I firmly believe that when when people are mobilizing, especially people of good faith and good conscience, even when there's things that aren't, you know, 100% what you want, because you can never have 100% what you want, uh, movements are inherently messy and you have to engage them. So... So let's engage some of the issues, um, you know, as you can imagine, because uh, if, if folks don't know, neither of, of the two members of Extension Rebellion with us here today are are white activists, but the, the environmental movement in general and Extension Rebellion specifically is accused of that. There's often uh, accusations or critique by people that there should be more of a focus on talking about capitalism and that's what it always should have been. That's, you know, sort of a left wing argument. Uh, and a lot of other things so we'll get into it but before doing so maybe we should ground ourselves and one way to ground ourselves is to talk about what are the actual demands and principles of extension rebellion so Alex you wanted to sort of give us a sense of what these these core demands are
2: yeah so we have three main demands with the first one being that for the government to tell the truth about the climate crisis and act like it and I think the second part about acting like it is really important because we now have a lot of governments including the one here who declare a climate emergency, but then the actions that they take are con- in contradiction. You know, you can say all you want, all the beautiful words about how much you care about the environment, but none of them mean anything if you the next day decide, oh yeah, we're going to continue building the pipelines, or we're going to continue giving millions and millions to fossil fuel, su- fossil fuel subsidiaries. So that's the uh, first demand. So the second demand is to act now uh, and enact legally binding policies to halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. I mean just like today the n- uh, new IPCC report sorry the IPCC report says that even if we were to stop carbon emissions now today extreme sea level events that used to occur once in a century will now be an annual thing by 2050. So this is why we're pushing so hard on to making um, the carbon emissions to zero by 2025. Nothing else will, will have a dent. And then third is for the governments to move beyond politics by creating and be led by decisions of citizen assembly to oversee climate and ecological justice to create a true democracy. So traditional representational democracy is really not fit for purpose of addressing the climate emergency as politicians represent many competing interests before they represent the interests of people and the planet these politicians are often funded by the same industries that have caused the crisis that we're in and they think really short-term because they want to get elected again it's a career so it's not seen as a long-term process so they don't have the courage to make the hard decisions that's needed to tackle this crisis. So that's why we're asking for a citizen assembly.
1: So uh, I guess one, one, uh, one critique or one area where people might, might challenge this, there's a typical left-wing one, which would be uh, through the demands of extinction rebellion and through the principles, capitalism and overthrowing capitalism and challenging capitalism is never is never clearly addressed, that things are kept kind of vague, and that you can't have a true movement against the climate crisis or to, to rectify the climate crisis without challenging capitalism And that. And in many ways, that's actually deliberately done because it's, there's the feeling that once you start getting into things like capitalism, imperialism, and that you don't have as, as a broader movement. And perhaps the reason why more middle class people are attracted to maybe not Extinction Rebellion itself, because you guys do civil disobedience, although I'm sure there's all kinds of people who are getting involved with Extinction Rebellion, but maybe attracted to this issue of climate change is because it doesn't really fundamentally challenge the things that people have been fighting for centuries, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, uh, the fact that we are not equal vis-a-vis the planet, we've never been that uh, villagers in Africa or indigenous peoples worldwide or people working in maculadoras have a completely different relationship. So basically that all comes down to power. And I don't want to put you on the spot like you have to explain Extinction Rebellion, but how do you navigate that? Um, uh, because that that is, I recently did an interview, for example, just actually two days ago, it was published, on, um, promoted by No Borders Media with two indigenous activists fighting pipelines in, uh, in British Columbia against a Trans Mountain pipeline near the Blue River. And uh, there just seems to be a disjunct between the way they express the issues and what I would hear from not just extinction rebellion in UK or Quebec but the environmental movement in general uh, so if if you have anything you want to say about about that specific critique
0: if I can just start with my very first the very first time I was invited to an extinction rebellion coordinators meeting it was in January it was at uh, Rosa, okay <laughs> so um there were just i ca- it was in the middle of january i arrived at this coordinators meeting i went to a table there were four white guys i was the only woman <laughs> and non white person um and you know what juggy they stole my heart because the first topic on the agenda of the meeting by these four white guys who didn't know anything about anti-colonialism was how should we like, how do we draft an anti-colonial position for XR to adopt? I'm not saying that we should be so eternally grateful to these white saviors, but there is a level of consciousness and these are, I, I, I found myself like in a group of allies and we have a common understanding of how to tackle climate change. It has to be decolonial. And in terms of, uh, you know what, I, And I think that actions do speak much louder than words. Um, we could have the best, y- you know, f- just transition statement in the world, but if we don't um, operate according to the values and the political positions, then we're no better than greenwashers. So if I can just take an example, um, we there are members of our group who, for example, in March, uh, when there was the uh, march of uh, the annual march of indigenous peoples in Brazil uh, for their rights, um, we did an action here. We invited the uh, Brazilian collective to our action. Uh, we made room to uh, include their co- quote in the press release and when the media came we shared all the media spot with them same thing as when um, when they organized the second action against the forest fires a few weeks ago we were there to s- provide them basically with technical support with organizational uh, capacity etc etc Um when they did the fundraiser this past weekend again we were there and we we, we were there to give them the resources so that they could be um, empowered and they could have the tools to make their own demands and to speak for themselves. Um, in general, uh, the criticisms of XR, and I think a lot of the criticisms I read about XR concern XR in the UK. Um, and I think that we have maybe the um, the privilege or the opportunity to learn from the mistakes of XR so that we don't repeat them in Quebec. Um, and I can't, I'm not going to tell you that it's easy. Uh, One of the XR members came and participated with myself in a hunger strike against Bill 21 and we had a really, really ugly backlash in the organization which resulted in uh, almost an emergency General Assembly on uh, on our position towards a just transition. Um, but because
1: uh, some people in the group felt that uh, opposing Bill 21, which it, for listeners mm-hmm. who don't know, is the um, law pastor in Quebec that uh, forbids people who wear religious symbols, specifically turbans, hijab, yarmulkes from working in certain sectors. People felt that was a distraction from the real issue or that you had okay. you had mentioned that you're part of Extension Rebellion at that action and that was not cool or... Just give a sense of...
0: Well, what happened was that um, it was not an extinction rebellion action. Mm -hmm. I was involved in it because I come from the anti-racism movement. um, And I just... I I, I sent um, a message. I was saying, hey, does anybody want to do this hunger strike with me? One person came uh he um he he brought with him an extinction rebellion banner and then we put that up on our uh facebook page and that's when mm-hmm. members who were not involved um got really angry and there were three type of um arguments one came from Islamophobes one was just clearly like we don't want to work with religious people <laughs> number uh, the second type was more of um an organizational you no know, democratic pr- process uh, argument, which again, like I, I don't want to get into that, but I think that could be very oppressive. It was like, how come we weren't consulted? How di- dare you do this without consulting everybody? Um, and then the third, the third one was, I would call it a kind of disguised racism, an extremely right white privileged position, which was, well, you know, we don't want to get into other issues because then that would uh, dilute our uh, climate change demands, and we will lose the support of people who support Bill 21, um, so for me that was another form of racism, uh, not as overtly as the Islamophobic ones.
1: Alex, do you want to add anything around sort of capitalism not being fully confronted, and there's centuries of resistance to capitalism that should be the grounding of any resistance, or at least that's a, a left-wing position, and Extinction Rebellion, I mean, guess I guess would be criticized as being Liberal middle class because it doesn't directly address capitalism in some way or another. Uh, how do you navigate that? Is is that is that debate happening? Are you try- are you guys trying to push that debate?
2: Absolutely, I think that debate is happening across a lot of um, XR chapters. I think the, the important thing, one of the things to say, is that Extinction rebellion is not an environmental movement. Um, the climate crisis is is the symptom but it's not the cause Um, it's a we're a social we're a social justice movement um you know the crisis isn't and quote just about trees and animals and oceans It's the umbrella under which everything else falls under from housing jobs justice equality to the basics of clean air and uh, water and access to food And I think a lot of people acknowledge also the crisis isn't something just happened out of the blue, but it's actually really linked to our history of colonialism and capitalism. And it's linked to these forces of um, exploitations of peoples and lands and resources to benefit the few. The forces of racism and supremacy where a group of people felt that they were more superior than others, so they had every right to exploit uh, people's lands and, and people and to kill off and kill off people to to get what they wanted so really the the this thing that our house is on fire yes it is but it's been on fire for centuries and I think a lot of people are talking more and more about it Um, the crisis also includes environmental racism where you know marginalized communities, uh, so communities of color and communities from lower socioeconomic backgrounds have and continue to be disproportionately affected by the climate crisis from air pollution to poisoned rivers because Companies commit these crimes where they just dump all their crap, basically, in these areas because they know they can get away with it. And the reason they know it is because they're part of this toxic system that's really working exactly the way it was planned to ensure that the many, which is mainly marginalized communities, pay for the privilege of the few. So within XR, it's not just in quote about the environment it's about changing the system as well because that really is what has led to the crisis that we're in today
1: thanks for that i guess another another way to, to look at it is there's a f- there are people who would argue that we shouldn't be and these aren't climate denial people but we shouldn't be centering things on climate that climate is one part of a larger struggle Cl- the climate crisis is one part of a larger struggle but the reason why it is centered is because it's so white <laughs> uh, and it's easily co-opted. So you have rich people, you have corporations, you have capitalists, all of whom and you, know, you, you are all in Extinction rebellion is clearly critical of this, but all of whom tout their green credentials or and in some cases, these these people who are within the system say some quite radical things about how we need to be carbon neutral and what have you. And I guess uh, others would say, well, actually, we should be centering on struggles that have been around all the time uh... indigenous struggles that are live not just as as you were mentioning may that you know if they're doing something we will support it but we should be centering those struggles like uh... and they exist here in in canada uh... in, in on turtle island or for example the zapatistas who you know who, who had their uprising a long time ago or for example i mean all of us all three of the people who are part of this interview right now we're all people of color we all come from cultures and traditions that dealt with colonialism and imperialism and self-determination and those struggles still exist and we know even within our cultures there are those that co-opt and become opportunists and others that are like no we come from cultures and struggles that fought for true social justice and it just seems that and again this is the media mainstream media but i'm kind of interested in how your take on it Uh, the centering of climate makes the movement western and white and there's uh, and that's almost a way of, of uh, sidelining other movements, whether we like it or not. I mean, there are actions that we do in, in our lives, but specifically in, in doing social justice organizing that even with the best of intentions, sometimes has unintended consequences. So I don't know if that's a clear question, but I'm just clear, I'm curious about 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 your reply to that. And I know just now, Alex, you you, you addressed that a bit because of environmental racism and the rest of it, but you know, who is being centered here? And this is not just about uh, XR or Quebec, because you are just one group and you're doing the best you can, but sort of a broader question around how environmental slash climate organizing has been happening in the past past decade or so, you know, to the extent where people say, this is the only issue we should be concerned about and say that to someone who's, who's poor and indigenous or poor and black or just poor. And it just is alienating and makes environment seem like a middle-class issue and not a true working person and poor person's issue, even though it affects all of us, clearly.
0: Um, like I said, Juggy, I consider myself an old activist, and I've I've spent all my life in Quebec. I've grown up in Quebec. I've been in the anti-apartheid movement, in many different social movements, um, and I think that one of the biggest weaknesses in Quebec is that we're not only two solitudes, we're like multiple, multiple so- solitudes like regardless of whether we're talking about environment, even in the anti-racism movement, like I'm sure you recog- you also experience like the huge division between the francophone and the and, and the anglophone sectors, and then even within these two sectors, like you have, um, you know the the, the Muslim community they usually gather when tha- whenever there's a question of Islamophobia, and then the black community will 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 demonstrate when there's a police uh, shooting of of blacks etc etc and so um, yeah it's unfortunate a a lot of social movements are compartmentalized and they there is not enough um, solidarity among movements Uh, when you talk about centering in fact at our General Assembly Gabrielle Bouchard uh, spoke about how the FFQ um, struggled for a long time on how to build an intersectional movement, And she said exactly that, you know FQ
1: r- is the uh, Quebec Women's Federation here in Quebec: Yes, yeah.
0: yes. And she said, "It's fucking hard." Because what you, what we have to do As white movements Is to give up our pri- privilege And we have to s- put someone She said The way that she put it Was um, wonderful She said It means that Your face doesn't get to be on the poster <laughs> um, It's somebody else's face It's going to be somebody else's voice On the radio In front of the TV And on the media Et cetera, et cetera um, And you know what uh, I, I think that your criticisms Are extremely uh, valid Um and uh, my dream is to build um a convergence of struggles um we're all fighting it's the same s- government that is being islamophobic that's fanning hate that's cutting services and that's um allowing corporations to continue to uh, pollute the environment and so uh, that 's my dream is to see not just environmental movement but to have a real convergence of all these movements together, fighting for social justice because I think when you talk to people um, a- and, and the other thing that you said is is correct um, and, and I t- explained to that to like the you know extinction rebellion members who say, "Oh, how come because you know, in the beginning, I was probably the only Like non-white person until Alice came along that was very much involved and I would say look you know when you're fighting uh, deportations when on July 1st you don't know if you have a house to live in how can you have the luxury to say oh I'm just going to work on climate change life is really really hard both of you have
1: already alluded to this for listeners who don't know uh, both of the Extinction Rebellion activists I'm interviewing right now are are people of color who are part of Extinction Rebellion uh, and both of you have alluded to, you know, th- how those dynamics often play out. You've alluded to it several times in previous responses. And in asking my next question, I, I want to say that I have a lot of affinity with both of you because I've been part of movements uh, and continue to be part of movements where it's, you know, you hear the critique and often it's a really easy critique to make that it's all white. And technically, A, it's not all white. And B, there are people of color who are conscious, who are organizing within it without without erasing the fact that they come from communities and struggles and are trying to bring that to the group so you know in the past uh, I was part of the so-called anti-globalization movement that had that critique identify as an anarchist and so identifying as an anarchist in North America there's going to be that critique so I'm not going to ask you the simple question of, like, what do you have to say about the whiteness of an environmental movement? There have been volumes written about that. So I want to ask it more in terms of how are you navigating that? And I'm asking that question with affinity <laughs> as someone who's navigated that before. Do you have you created caucuses? Have you have you talked about having you know, a separate committee? So I asked my question with affinity for... Um, for that dynamic you know we we currently live in a white majority population in in quebec outside of montreal it's upwards of 95 to 99 percent white activists so we have to engage that um, wherever we are so how are you engaging that within xr and and dealing with that critique in that way you don't have to address the larger critique because that is an ongoing debate that should not be either on your shoulders or or my shoulders but how do you navigate that as two organizers, and I'm sure there's dozens and dozens and dozens of other organizers or people of color who who aren't erasing their identity, but navigating that within this broader environmental movement, which isn't an environmental movement, it's a social justice movement, but you're trying to make it more of a social justice movement and less of just an environmental movement. How do you, how do you navigate that?
2: I think uh, my experience here has been people are within xr um are very willing to learn um i haven't really met people that are kind of like oh this is my agenda this is what i'm going to lead with i know everything i feel there's a lot of humbleness and um, people asking and you know and and not are afraid of asking as well i think often people have questions and they're like oh i don't want to ask cuz i might offend or or you know anything like that i think we've had some really really hard but meaningful discussions and debates and i've learned so much and hopefully like they've also learned so i think it's it's a it's a constant um learning process as we're kind of growing together
0: um, what i found refreshing about xr again juggy i've been in a lot of political movements and a lot of lot of movements or some movements that proclaim themselves to be left and anti-racist and 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 all that um, and in the end like if you if you dare criticize uh, these left white progressives you know uh, often the reaction it would be very defensive and and it would be well what's wrong with you you know we're the good guys why are you criticizing us why do you bring this up whereas with my experience with XR um. In general, again, people, maybe it's because they they lack (laughs) political experience, they're not hardened, they're not cynical, but, you know, when there is a criticism, instead of being defensive, I find it so refreshing, people will want to understand, like, oh, where did I go wrong? Can you explain it to me? So that I don't repeat this error. Um, And again, like, I just find myself uh, with allies, um, the only instance of uh, real racism that I confronted again uh, was during the Bill 21 issue um, and I took advantage of the fact that Extinction Rebellion is supposed to be non-hierarchical and that anybody can take initiative so I called for a General Assembly and it happened and people were so supportive like Alex helped, every, there were so many people who helped organize it and I think a lot of people who also who were not aware of uh, intersecting issues wanted to learn more they they wanted to hear from the panel of speakers and experts that they've never encountered before and again like this uh, f- this um attitude of humbleness uh was really like for me was really um welcoming so uh,
1: one one other area i want to get into is because um, the, the the two that we've gone into are actually huge huge topics um you know, how do we have an intersectional movement against capitalism and imperialism that uh, recognizes that uh, there's an inherent flaw to how we've developed and questions, uh, you know, our responsibility for the climate crisis, and of course, organizing as, as non-white activists in ma- majority white settings, and how do we navigate that? The next one though is, 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 a, is a debate that's ongoing, it's around non-violent, and this is certainly a critique that's been aimed at Extinction Rebellion. Now. I'm someone who's participated in nonviolence of disobedience. I have no problem with it. I, I actually like a lot of mass civil disobedience. <coughs> the problem, I think, is where it becomes moralistic. Uh, so, for example, in the principle for nonviolence by Extinction Rebellion, uh, it's, it's said that it's the, most effective, um, it's the most effective way to bring about change. And just to be very blunt, that's not true. <laughs> there are multiple ways that changes happen historically. It doesn't, mean we, it doesn't mean we glorify violence, not at all. But there are movements historically and contemporarily that have had to defend themselves or have engaged in armed struggle. There are movements that don't. Um, and there are moments, movements that coexist. For example, the the, the two great examples of, of non mass nonviolence civil disobedience that are often referenced are the Black Civil Rights Movement and the Indian Independence Movement. I know that the UK advocates of Extinction Rebellion very explicitly make that reference. But neither of those two movements existed in isolation. Um, Mal- uh, Martin Luther King Jr. existed with Malcolm X. And many of the more, I would call, nuanced or savvy civil rights organizers said, look, every time there's a riot, we have more space <laughs> to do what we do. And similarly, uh, Gandhi existed, but so did Ambedkar, so did Bhagat Singh, and so did others. So I'm not going to ask you the larger historical part of this because that's an ongoing debate. But so uh, the way it's playing out on the streets is, for example, there's a, uh, there's a video of one of the extension rebellion founders in UK talking to a police officer and saying, we want to have a lot of arrests. You know, we want you to arrest us. And a lot of people feel that's just ludicrous and disempowering because their relationship with the police is very different. The police are not somebody to negotiate with. There are people to oppose. And that the tactic of nonviolent civil disobedience is being emphasized because it's the most that middle class people could do. And again, I think we should do disruptive stuff. If people are comfortable with it, great. But maybe not negotiate so much with the police or more importantly, not say that it, it is the most effective means of change because we know there are other movements out there that are doing other things. Uh, so there's a real tension there. And I know a lot A lot of the left radical critique of groups like XR often I feel is just cynical and hyperjudgmental. It's it's going to be a judgment of any movement, right? So I'm here to engage these issues. But uh, I do know that a lot of people, not just on the left, but in general, are like, whoa, this idea of throwing yourself at the cops or just kind of being passive, you know, lying on the street, waiting <laughs> for the police to arrest you, getting a ticket. It's only something that privileged people can do, A, and B, it's actually disempowering ultimately. and. The other the other sort of critical things I've gotten into are, are much larger than XR, but this isn't because this is one of your principles. Uh, you can't be XR unless you do that. If if I was to join XR and maybe was nonviolent but had more of a confrontational attitude towards the police, I'm sure that's a gray area for a lot of you, but I'm sure a lot of existential rebellion people would be, you're against the spirit of us because we want to do civil disobedience and have the police be on our side. or They're not the enemy. It's the power. So... Uh, how do you how do you feel about this emphasis on nonviolence? I mean, you're part of the group, and that's fine. I've been part of groups that are nonviolent, and I accept that. But uh, this critique that I'm, I'm giving to you, which is actually something that is specific to XR, and a lot of people have a hesitation of getting involved because they just can't accept that uh, nonviolence would be claimed to be the most effective means of social change. When that's just again, I'm saying it's just not just not true. And and just to be clear, uh, both of you are speaking as individual activists, and not on behalf of any bigger group, because these are these are issues that you know we all have to reckon with individually.
2: Absolutely. So I think you touched on some really really good points. Um, XR's position is to remain nonviolent, and that's just one approach. We know that there are lots and lots of different approaches. Some that are nonviolent. Some that are. Not nonviolent, and we respect really this diversity because they're not mutually exclusive. It's not just one way that works. There's lots and lots of different ways to bring about change. For some, it will be through nonviolence. That's the path that they want to take. For others, it will be a different path. Not one is right or you know m- better than the other. It's just that this is the position that XR has taken. But we emphasize and and really respect the that the different. Different approaches and the diversity of tactics that need to be taken to bring about change.
0: The position of XR and how we live the principles, especially in the Quebec branch, has been evolving. Well, maybe some people think it's regressing, but for me, it was an it's an it's an evolution. Uh, in one of our earlier interviews, our spokesperson on the subject of nonviolence had said, "Oh, well." We don't want to be violent because look what happened with the student strikes. You know, they were violent and it was terrible. um, And I was the first one to say, don't you dare judge the tactics of another group. And one of the things I keep um, bringing up as an example is that there are like indigenous peoples who feel that they have to protect their territory through arms. And who are we white people or (laughs) non-indigenous people to judge them on the tactics that they feel they're forced to assume um, and so actually in terms of judging like this is something that we've come to terms with uh, and um, you know in our civil disobedience trainings again they have evo- evolved tremendously because one of the Greenpeace activists used to talk about his experience of getting arrested um, and then when I sometimes I do the legal presentation and when I start talking about the legal presentation I remind people uh, about the context of police violence and brutality in Quebec um, and I remind them that you know you may be you may have white privilege but even your white privilege will only protect you to a certain extent because, and again, you know, I talk, remind them about how during the student strikes of 2012, people have um, have uh, lost an eye, Um, people have really suffered physical harm from police brutality, and so um, you know, we we do remind people about this, uh, but getting back to the nonviolent civil disobedience, it, you know, was something that I accepted by joining XR, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to condone another environmental group that is going to use other tactics.
1: Well, May and Alex, I, I really appreciate you um, taking the time. Uh, we've spent more than an hour in a in a really uh, hot little studio <laughs> somewhere in Montreal engaging these issues, and you've been very open and frank and uh, in discussing a lot of the organizing challenges. And again, I want to reiterate more for our listeners than for you that it's important to engage these issues. There's just a real tendency... Uh, on the broader progressive left to, to have purity tests. And instead we need to engage them. And I think it'd be great, uh, maybe to have a, a reprise of this interview about a year from now or two years from now, because it's been a really busy nine months. And, you know, some of these things about making our movements more anti-capitalist or take into account frontline struggles more and in a more meaningful way. These are huge challenges that some movements that have been around for decades and decades still haven't dealt with. So, um, I just appreciate, appreciate that and also appreciate both of you giving a sense of what Extension Rebellion here in Quebec is worth. And it's very timely because we have the upcoming uh, uh, day of climate action on September 27th, at least here in Montreal and worldwide. But um, I want to offer you an opportunity just if there's any final words or thoughts, especially if you want to share any upcoming actions, because this is going to go to air within the next day or two. So let us know about that and share with us any of your final thoughts. Let's start with uh, May.
0: Okay, uh, thanks for this opportunity. Um, so I just want to re- remind you listeners that uh, I- everybody is really thrilled um, with the hype for the climate march that's coming up this Friday because Greta Thunberg will be there. Um, but when the march is over, we will see, we will be able to measure the success of the march only by the action that governments will actually commit to itself to and that is why with the extinction rebellion our work will not um, end with the march Uh, the week of october 7th um, is the second international week of rebellion we will have lots of actions in the streets Um, there may be more arrests um, and um, whether you want to participate in direct action or just for support or um, you know in any capacity that 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 you your listeners feel like I would um, invite you to um, uh, look at our Facebook page and follow us and Alex, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted
2: to um, talk about this. I think there's been some misconceptions about what sort of an activist is and and looks like, and a lot of people have this idea that and then they go, oh, but uh, that doesn't fit me, so I can't really get involved I'm not the activist type, so to speak, but just want to highlight that actually if, if you're a young person and you're worried about your future, you're an activist. If you're a grandparent and you're really worried about how your grandchildren's lives are going to be when they grow up, you're an activist. If you're a nurse and you're seeing huge influx of patients, you know, suffering from heat stroke because of the rising temperatures, you're an activist. If you're a teacher, a police officer, a a doctor, unemployed artist, you're an activist. And if you're listening to this show right now, you also are an activist. So everyone can get involved and everyone shouldn't get should get involved because really this this issue it's it's something that will impact on every single aspect of our lives and of the lives of peoples and generations coming in the future um so get active get involved and fight as if your life depends on it because it really does
1: mechu and alex shiraz both members of extension rebellion here in quebec and also part of the collective organizing the upcoming march on september 27th where we expect probably hundreds of thousands and might be the largest demonstration in quebec history we'll see but uh... thank you both for speaking with us on No borders media
2: thank
0: you out where the river broke the bloodwood and the desert oak
1: you were just listening to a critical engagement with Extinction Rebellion, an interview with two people of color members of Extinction Rebellion Quebec, May Chu and Alex Shiraz. No Borders Media is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to colonialism and capitalism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at network at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months.